Tonight's scripture reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It's printed in your bulletin. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for, gra- greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God, that you haven't uh, left us without a word. What parent would um, give birth to a child and then not speak to him or her? We know you're not like that. And uh, we're waiting on you to speak to us. And we uh, thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. So tonight, we're going to start a new study that will run through the summer, which uh, I'm calling Gracious Goodness. And um, tonight, we're actually just going to look at the first five verses, though I'm glad you saw what we're going to preview next week, which is this idea of leaders or elders. And uh, this idea of gracious goodness comes from a key verse in the book of Titus, where Paul writes, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all, teaches us to say no to what we need to say no to, and yes to what we need to say yes to. This idea of grace and goodness that works together. I was uh, at the uh, PCA's annual, that's this denomination, annual meeting, and ran into an old friend of mine, and uh, we were sitting together while the the meetings were uh, going on, and he said, what are you preaching on this summer? And I said, well, we're finishing this. I'm going to preach on Titus. And he let up and he said, you know, I preached on Titus a couple years ago, and, and I was tempted to entitle it, Good Works Are Awesome, you know. You don't often hear that in Presbyterian Reformed traditions, <laughs> right? We're always on the lookout. The good works don't get misused. Well, get ready. 
get ready for good works in what we talk about. And I think it's uh, particularly relevant when you think about the city when a lot of people that transplant to Washington, D.C. come here because they want to do good. They want to make some positive change. Maybe it's at the federal government level. Maybe it's a state level. Maybe it's a nonprofit. Maybe they came here to plant a church. But they came here because they want to do good, make a positive impact. And the question is, how do we get to the... How do we get our good works not to be like fireworks? You know, something that's really beautiful for a few seconds and they just go away. Because the reality is a lot of people don't stay because doing good works burns them out. Or they become disillusioned and discouraged because it's so hard. And so uh, this letter will address that in part. I mean, we've been going at this particular church for about 20 years. I would say this to me personally has been a lifeline. How do you continue to keep on to keep on and wake up each day and actually long to do good works after God? So we're going to look at that together through this uh, book that was written to Titus. Titus was one of two key mentees and leaders for the Apostle Paul. Timothy was the other one. And these three books together are often called the pastoral epistles because uh, Paul is writing to two lead pastors. And he's writing to them about how does a healthy church operate when you think about grace and good works together. Titus was a non-Jew. That means he was a Gentile. He was someone that likely came to faith and a follower of Jesus through Paul himself. Paul calls him a true son in the faith. And at the time of the writing of this book, which is probably A.D., early 60s, he had been in the ministry with Paul for about 20 years. And Paul really relied on him. I mean, he's a leader. And he gives him this job. And we're, we're kind of getting, I don't know if you've ever seen... Uh, uh, when you're watching sports and they do sort of inside the huddle, right, where they put a microphone on the coach or they put a microphone on the captain and you get to hear the basics. You get to hear, you know, w what they're thinking about, the strategy. Well, many ways, Titus is sort of an inside the huddle book. And in the intro that Paul gives, all of his letters have intros, but this is the longest intro we have in one of Paul's letters. In a sense, he gives us the strategy for the entire book. There's key words like faith and goodness and salvation and grace. He's giving us a prologue. He's giving us a preview of the things he's going to hit. And it's particularly challenging because of where they are. They're at this place called Crete. Anybody been to Crete? Look at that. Two people have been to Crete, so you know we're not making this up, right? Crete was a real place, big island, uh, south of Greece, southwest of modern-day Turkey. But back then, it had sort of a reputation of a sin city. And we'll get back to that, as Paul talks about it in the book. But it also was flooded with a lot of false teachers, 
Chances are the churches that started there were pilgrims from Pentecost, the event that happened in the New Testament where uh, Jewish people from all over the world of that day heard about Jesus Christ and then they dispersed. Likely some of them went back to Crete and there were solid churches, but there was also sort of some weird teaching Paul was concerned about. And he wants Timothy to be wise, but, and at the heart of it, rather Titus, and at the heart of it, you know, I'm not used to this thing going back and forth. So show me, you know, I'm, I've just transitioned to moving freely with, with uh, the lapel mic, and I'm really thinking I'm going to probably trip at some point here. Um, where was I? Oh, so the main theme behind his concern both with the Cretans and the false teachers is this gap between knowledge and living. Now, maybe sometime you've sought um, the wisdom of a counselor or a therapist or a mentor because you felt like, all right, I've got this like gap between these patterns of the way I live and interact and think, and they're not good, and I can't connect the dots. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. There's a gap of knowledge and living. And you know, that can be a dangerous thing, right? I mean, it can be a small thing, but it can really, if you go on long with that gap, your life will really suffer. Other people's lives will suffer. And so, we really have to know good, which is the title of servant, so we don't end up N-O good, no good, right? We have to know good in a different way a way where knowledge leads to life change. Uh, and the way Paul says this knowing good comes is a definitive body of teaching. A definitive body of teaching that there is something to know. Now, this is where modern people were kind of backwards and forwards. Now, one hand, we, we live our lives this way. We understand that there's like... Uh, bodies of knowledge when it comes to plumbing or physics or uh, some sort of a sport or art or maybe uh, medicine, right? Uh, some of you have seen the Geico commercial where the guy's in bed and uh, he asks the nurse, yeah, how's this surgeon? And she goes, hey, he's all right. You know, and then the surgeon shows up and he goes, hey, I've been reinstated. Looks at the guy and says, nervous? I'm nervous too. Let's just, you know, let's just wing it. None of us would sit there, right? Ask a surgeon and go, well, well you know, what sort of, how many times have you done this? Well, I've never done it before. <laughs> Where did you study? I'm self-taught, you know? <laughs> so we understand there are these bodies of knowledge that are critical and important to know, except when it comes to things like faith and the way we live. Then we sort of go, no, there's really no body of knowledge. We just kind of go with our gut and go with our feelings. But, you know, the Christian faith teaches that God cared enough to actually transmit knowledge whereby we could live and we can flourish. And it's knowledge that's been codified. Paul would say that it's knowledge that has been passed down, that it's been entrusted Jesus himself would say, your word is truth. And this knowledge begins in the Hebrew scriptures, but it culminates 
and has a literal crossroads at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The scriptures were not able to be interpreted as they should until Jesus showed up because it was through his life became the lens. And it's this knowledge that sits before Paul and Titus. It is the glue that bonds them. It is the heart of the ministry, and it is the way the church will be healthy. And it's been the foundation of this church. The gospel and the scriptures with Jesus at the center has been our source of health for two decades. And so I want to look at just two parts of that knowledge. And I think uh, one of them for sure will not be considered particularly helpful for health. And it's this. Assurance of being chosen and assurance of being saved. Those two pieces of knowledge, that's where Paul is talking about. Assured, knowledge of being assured that you are chosen and assured that you are saved. Let's look at those two things together, okay? Assurance of being chosen. Um, Man, assurance is hard to come by these days, isn't it? We live in the age of the superbug. Um, you know, we're, every other day it seems like we hear about another senseless shooting. Concerns about the future, unjust wars. Um, it's hard to find assurance. And uh, people of faith, Christian people, also have this area of their relationship with God where they struggle with assurance. One of the things that um, the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches, which is one of the, um, con- one of, one of the documents or, or um, cons- part of the constitution of this church, and I really appreciate that they do this, they mention this, a true believer may wait long in conflict with many difficulties before partaking of assurance, right? You can be the truest believer, have strong faith, and still struggle with feeling assured before God. And basically, um, you know, if your whole world, everything can be peaceful outside, but if your world with God is not assured, you're not going to feel assured, and the opposite is true too. The world could be falling apart, but if you have assurance of God in your heart, you can actually live and move forward. And so, Paul says one of the sources of this assurance is knowing that you have been chosen by God. Now, this often becomes a doctrine of controversy instead of comfort, and it gets us in these philosophical rabbit holes, right? Well, first of all, and I I confess, uh, as a young Christian coming onto this doctrine, I clubbed a lot of people with it, you know, misused it. In the Bible, it's always a doctrine of comfort that I'm going to get to the finish line because of God's faithfulness. But also, uh, we have to understand the Bible is very comfortable with laying down these two ideas of God choosing and our faith side by side. 
But not in the way we would say, like, okay, that means God looks ahead and sees how good I'm going to be in my faith, and then he chooses me. No, it's not saying that. It's saying that both God's choice and our response of faith coexist together. And so if you're someone that worries about that, I would just say this. Do you want to be chosen? Then go follow Jesus. You want to be chosen? Follow Jesus. There's not this fatalistic thing where, gee, I want to I be on God's team and I can't be. No one will be uh, finding themselves in hell, in eternal judgment, going, I really wanted to believe, I really wanted to love God, I really wanted the taste of his grace, I really wanted to relish in his kindness, but I couldn't. He wouldn't let me. That's an impossibility in the scriptures. But I also want you to hear it's a reality. This comes from Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. This is speaking to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore. That's in the Old Testament. Listen to the New Testament. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did you hear in both of those the connection between lifestyle and being chosen? This idea that we're not just sort of chosen to live however we want, the two relate together. And then perhaps the most significant one is Jesus himself, who says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. They're chosen, and they will follow me. Now, the Apostle Paul knew this well because God literally had knocked him off his high horse. Paul was an opponent. He was a blasphemer. He hated the church. He persecuted people. And yet, in another pastoral epistle, he says, but God, knowing all that, his grace overflowed to me. This is a trustworthy saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God chooses sinners. And that's really important to understanding this assurance. Um, you know, the more you, I wish for all of us, like sort of the, the self-heart knowledge that the Apostle Paul had. Because in the one hand, Paul was so honest about his past and his hatred and his anger and the way he lived, but he was so confident before God in grace. He's, he's the prophet that preached about God's unconditional love and grace. How do you get those two things together? Because for a lot of people, religion just makes you feel terrible. And then you got cheap grace. That's this idea that I just sort of like pretend all the bad stuff in my heart ain't there. But if you and I just day-to-day -day considered our judginess, 
our desire to please ourselves first, how quick we are to be anger, angry when someone blocks our goals. I mean, I'm just talking about day-to-day -day stuff. We've realized that the situation isn't, hey, throw me a life preserver. The situation is someone has to dive in and knock you out to save you. <laughs> someone has to take the initiative. Someone has to come and find you and pull you from the bottom of the sea. It's only when we are willing to, to do that sort of analysis, that heart analysis, that the fact that God would freely and unconditionally choose people apart from whatever they do, and the invitation is for anybody and everybody in this moment, in this room, only then does it become a huge source of comfort. Right? I mean, this idea of being loved, not for what I do, but treasured unconditionally. To be held in the hands of God. God's electing love. Now, there are a lot of bad things can happen from someone that misuses that understanding, right? Self-righteousness, abuse of authority. But I want you to notice the effect it has upon Paul. So what we're doing here is we're talking about a key doctrine of grace, this idea that God of his own initiative came in and chose me. And the effect it has upon the way we live. Two ways, I would say, Paul. First of all, it produces a humility that disarms autonomy. A humility that disarms autonomy. And by autonomy, I mean this idea that I get to live the way I want. I get to live freely and independently. Uh, we were having dinner with one of our neighbors last night. Really this beautiful uh, young couple in their 30s. And... Uh, we, we both have puppies, so we've become, you know, we bonded that way, uh, especially me and the husband, just, you know, sh sharing our troubles together. And, uh, and uh, they are not, uh, as far as I know, professing Christians, that's not their thing. Uh, but um, they were talking about the effect of, I had said to them, you know, I've noticed that you all are very earnest with community. Like, I'm always seeing people going in and out of your house. They've invited us over two times, three times. We finally got them over. And they said, yeah, you know, that changed during the pandemic. Said, Something about the pandemic, we, we just began to evaluate our lives. And one of the key things he said, it was, it was so insightful, he said, I came to understand that community requires obligation. Obligation. It's meaning my schedule's going to get impacted, my life's going to get impacted. It's this idea of service. You can't get any more obligated than a slave. The Apostle Paul refers to himself as a servant of God, but the literal words in the Greek are a slave of God. Now, that's a hard term for us to deal with, especially in America, with chattel slavery in our background. But I've got to transport you to Israel so you understand the context of it. And that is, in Israel, there would be bond servants people that needed to hire themselves out as servants for a period. But there would become a time where they were free. They fulfilled their obligation, and they would have a choice. They could leave. Master was to give them supplies so they could start their new life. But if they felt like they had become part of the family, 
If they felt like that they, there was just this love, they would pierce their ear and they would become a servant for life in that family. And of course, it reminds you of another servant who had hands and feet pierced, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, where we're told, have this mind among yourselves, which is humility, by the way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, praise God. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but became, emptied himself, and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. You hear what it's saying there? That no one was more a slave of God than Jesus. Even as the Son of God, having the status of God, and you see this when he washes his disciples' feet, that's what household slaves did, the lowest of the low. And so... The Apostle Paul understands that the grace that came to him through the Son of God taking the lowest place and substituting his life and becoming a filthy object of sin and being punished and judged for him required nothing less than this idea that he was a willing and voluntarily slave. You know, in a downhole, often before I'm going to preach something, God you know, kind of outs me on it. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm walking the dog today. And uh, without getting into details, uh, he, he regularly, as a puppy, eats things he shouldn't eat. And uh, you know that because one of your jobs as a master is you pick up dog droppings, right? And, uh, and so he, he uh, last night while we were having this dinner, we, we, whenever things get silent, it's like if you have a toddler, you're like, that's not good. You know, we just heard some noise and within a split second he had eaten what was the remainder of the salad bowl and the meat and he was going to town on all the, like, uh, corn on the cob that had been cut off. And part of that is he's now so big he can actually get right up on the counter, the, uh, the, the counter. It was almost like he was sitting in one of the bar stools, you know, just kind of like eating away. So anyway, literally, that's the mess that I'm working on, cleaning. And wouldn't you know, he, he couldn't have, this is probably way too much description for a sermon, isn't it? I, I know, can we, can we turn off the, the recorded feed? But, you know, he, there's, he could go in a place where it's, easier to take care of that. But, you know, if it happens to be like in a bunch of pebbles and rocks, it means I'm going to be there for a while. And at that point, I was just like, you know, I finally, he's pulling on me and a stroller goes by and I'm like, I'm like, dang dog, and this is what I do. And as soon as I said that, I was like, and I just felt like God said to me, that's right, Glenn, servant of all. Even this dog, even what you're doing now isn't as low as I went, right? The gospel making us freely and voluntarily going, yeah. Okay, 
Let me hit this quick, and then we're going to just do one other point quickly. Uh, so I say that, one, this idea that you're chosen, humility disarms autonomy. But the second one is humility tempers authority, because Paul says he's not only a slave of God, but he is a sent one. He's someone under authority. When you're someone that is under authority, and you don't cower under it, it makes you exercise authority differently, right? The worst tyrants in the world are people that think they're an authority to themselves. Or maybe you have an, a boss like that, that you just have, they have no sense that they are under authority. But when you are someone that understands that, you're a sent one by God, you come in a different manner. And so I would say whatever authority God has given you, and he's given us all some, you know, whatever he's given you to steward, the fact that you have been chosen by him, sent by him, ought to make us wield it in a different way. We don't wield it at all. We steward it. Here's a quote that I thought was good. Slavery meant obligation. Apostleship meant authority, but both meant responsibility. So... Assurance of being chosen. But let's close it out with assurance of being saved. Now, in the Bible, that's a three-tenths word. Some of you might know that. The Bible speaks of being saved as, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And salvation is a big concept in the Bible. It's not only God forgiving you of your sins and of your guilt. Amen for that. But it means that he completely shaloms you. <laughs> he shellacks you. He shaloms you with his grace, meaning peace, kindness overwhelms you. Salvation in the Old Testament means he saves me from being sick. He saves me from my enemies. He saves me from poverty. He say, this is where Paul says in the book of Romans, no matter what it is, death, angels or demons, sickness, famine, evil. There's this idea that I am saved. I am in his hand. Do you worry about the future? Do you worry about this week? Do you worry day to day? Are you riddled with anxiety? I am. And I started to think... Um, you know, there's a psalm that I read with longing, and it says that the righteous, those that know God, have no dread of bad news. How is that? But it's this idea that because I am saved, and here the focus on eternal life is this idea of I am saved, I'm not only being saved, but I will be finally okay Better than okay. I'll be all right. You might get COVID here today. You might get really sick. You might die. You'll be all right. You might get knocked over by a giant crane developing the city. You'll be okay. Right? Whatever it is you and I fear, the idea that we're being told here is that we'll be saved. Okay, but we can't just conjure up the feelings, right? 
That's why I said that before. You know, I, we just can't sit there and conjure up the feeling. We need something better than our own assurance because that wavers. And that's where there's something, I think, really beautiful here. And I want to reference um, an old, old book, an allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. And even if you're not someone that grew up in the Christian faith, you've heard of it because it's just one of those great books. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, I shouldn't have asked that after saying it's a great book because there's lots of great books I haven't read, and then you would be like, I'm not read, not, yeah, anyway. So at this part, it's about this guy named Christian, it's an allegory, trying to get to the celestial city, heaven. And at this point in the story, he's with his companion, Hope. And they have fallen asleep, not in a great place. They have fallen asleep in the territory of a giant. His name is Giant Despair. And uh, Giant Despair finds them, he grabs them, and he throws them into his dungeon. And the giant then asks his giant wife, what should I do? And she says, well, I think you ought to beat them every day. And so that's what he does. He goes down and beats them, and they try to stay on their own. And the next day, same thing. He finally says to them, you know, you need to take your own lives because this is just going to get bad. And so there, Hope and Christian are in the castle of doubt with the giant of despair. And it hits Christian all of a sudden. Ah! Now I'm reading from it. What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. I am persuaded, open any lock in doubting castle. Hopeful said, that's good news, brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Christian pulled it out. He began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. He went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key, opened that door also. After he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too, but that lock went desperately hard, yet the key did open it. Then they then thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. Promise was the key. You might feel like God is not going to keep his promise to me on the basis I live and that my faith goes up and down, but I'll ask you this. Will he, will he keep it to Jesus? Will he keep it to the faithful son of God? Because that's actually the ground of the assurance called the covenant of redemption, this idea that it's the pre-agreement that the Father and Son and Spirit had before the creation of the world. That's why the scriptures always tie together this idea of being chosen before the creation of the world. That's why Jesus prays and talks about Father in, in John 17. These are the people you gave me before the creation of the world. So the question isn't whether or not God will keep his promise to you. That's kind of a whole, that's, that's, you, you have, no, you have total grounds to believe that, but we struggle. But it is a turning point in your faith when you start to say, God, you will be faithful to me because you must be faithful to yourself. You must be faithful to your promise. Because as Paul said, God who does not lie 
That's why he includes that. And so, what would it look like if you guys took all the things that you're afraid, along with me, maybe we write them all down, and over that we wrote, I will be okay, I will be saved, because the Father made a promise to the Son. That will produce some goodness in your life. So you see how this thing ties all together. If you and I did a little group thing together, of all the ways our seeking to belong or be chosen, and all the ways we try to ensure our future from our fear, if we took those things and thought, all the patterns I get into that are negative and difficult, the ambition, lack of taking risks, Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's getting into relationships I shouldn't get into. Maybe it's constantly like punishing myself because I don't, all this stuff you and I do because we think I don't belong, I'm not chosen, and I'm not safe. If we stop doing that and we actually could believe, what, what would be the good that would come out of a group of people that believed that they were chosen and saved? It would be a lot of good. That's a pretty secure people, isn't it? That's a pretty confident people. It's a humble people. It's a people that are obligated to each other and the city they're serving. It's a people that aren't afraid of what's on the other side. I'm not constantly trying to conserve because I really believe I'm gonna be okay. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, your word. Thank you that it's been entrusted. Thank you that you speak to us. Would you work your grace in a way that we delight in being good? In Christ's name, amen.